Hi, and welcome to our debut episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. Why Little House on the Prairie, or at least why another podcast about the TV series Little House on the Prairie? And my answer is, of course, why not? It's nice to have, of course, different opinions, different takes. Um, I myself started listening to podcasts just back in August. Um, I had LASIK surgery done, and I had some hours where I just couldn't see anything. And so I listened to my first podcast, which, of course, was talking about the TV series My So-Called Life. And as soon as I was done with that one, I picked up another podcast about the TV series My So-Called Life. And then a third. And then a fourth. Prior to listening to my first podcast, and of course after the pandemic had started, I was in search for a book series that would go ahead and just keep me occupied for a lengthy bit of time. Because, well, we were in a lengthy bit of time. I was looking for a series that I hadn't read before. Or at least I hadn't read all the way through. So, I... Reread the first two books, really hard to get through, even though they're short. And then I jumped right into From the Banks of Plum Creek. And yeah, it, there were definitely a few slower moments in that as well. But let's say, as soon as we got onto the fifth book and the sixth book, The Long Winter, oh, that's my favorite one out of all of those, um, I was hooked. So I went ahead and completed the entire series. Of course, as soon as I had finished the book series, I could not help but just wonder how much of this was actually true and how much of it was fabricated, because it is historical fiction, so there's got to be some embellishment here or there, or just the chain of events might just be off. So I went ahead and I picked up Caroline Fraser's Prairie Fires, and I dived immediately into that, and highly recommend that if you want to go ahead and get more perspective on some Laura Ingalls Wilder there. What I really enjoyed about Caroline Fraser's book was how it filled in so many little gaps of history, or at least put more history into context of these little House on the Prairie books. So, highly recommended. Even after finishing Prairie Fires, my appetite for knowing more about Little House on the Prairie was not curbed enough. So I jumped into Alison Argren's autobiography, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, How I Survived, Nellie Olson, and Learned to Love Being Hated. This was a very entertaining book. But still, my appetite was not curbed. So then I picked up a copy of The Way I See It, a look back at my life on Little House, the autobiography of Melissa Anderson. Sadly, not as entertaining. However, I have yet to get to Melissa Gilbert's autobiography. That's still on the book list. So that has been a total of 11 books that have occupied my time since last May all about the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder and Little House on the Prairie. So after reading all of these books, of course, I needed to watch the series. Then in December, Fate stepped in, and the entire series of Little House on the Prairie was available on iTunes for $20. That's 201 episodes, and then three episodes explaining the Little House phenomenon. So if you do your math, that's about 10 cents per episode. Any purchase was made. And then finally, as though it was just a sign that this was a good idea, right before New Year's, PBS aired an American Masters on Laura Ingalls Wilder. So that's when I decided to go ahead and try to make a podcast. And I figured I need a project. 
there's just a handful of episodes that I can recall, so it would be a great experience. Well, I can't guarantee it's going to be a great experience, but it will be an experience nonetheless. Alright, now that introductions are out of the way, let's jump into this. So if you're not aware, Little House on the Prairie actually started out as a made-for-TV movie adaptation of the Little House on the Prairie book. And that was written and developed by Blanche Hanalis. And it was directed by Michael Landon and aired on March 30th, 1974. Like I said, this pilot movie is based off of the book. So of course we're going to be spending some time going over the things that are included and of course were not included. So the series begins with the lines, If I Had a Remembrance Book. And from there, Laura then begins to narrate the establishing shot. We see Pa going ahead and loading up the wagon, and given the reason that there are more people moving into the area and food is getting scarce, so we have to pick up and leave. Ma's with the kids, saying goodbye to her relatives, and really not sure whether or not she's going to be seeing them ever again. So goodbyes are said, everyone piles into the wagon, and we start our trek through the snow towards the prairie. We also get introduced to our truest friend and loyal guard dog, Jack, who follows behind every step of the way. From there, we cut away and we get our title scene, Little House on the Prairie. We have this nice silhouette of the covered wagon and Jack following behind it on our screen, which totally reminds me of Ingrid Bergman's The Seventh Seal. All right, so here's my first big complaint right here. We go ahead and we leave the snow of Wisconsin and we're magically in the fields. Now, in the book, for them to leave Wisconsin, they have to cross Lake Pippin. So if you're not sure where Lake Pippin is located, you can go ahead and look on your maps and find Pippin, Wisconsin, and zoom out there and then see there's Lake Pippin. Pretty pretty wide bit of water right there. But if you scroll out just a little bit farther, you'll then also realize that Lake Pippin is just a smaller portion of the Mississippi River. So the very first thing that the Ingalls clan has to do is make a trek across the frozen Mississippi River. In the book, after they finish crossing the river and they set up camp for the evening, Laura is woken in the middle of the night to these loud cracking sounds. And Ma comes in and just lets her know, oh, that's just the sound of the ice breaking up. The ice that we just crossed maybe five, six, seven hours ago. (sighs) Frightening. The prairie is already frightening. And we haven't even gotten to the prairie. So the next few minutes of the episode are just cutting back and forth of the Ingalls traveling in different directions, making few stops on their way to Kansas. And so their their whole adventure goes from Wisconsin across to Minnesota, then to Iowa, and then into Missouri before we actually get into Kansas. So somewhere along that line, they also do cross the Missouri River. However, in that case, they do get ferried across. None of that we get to see. It's just all implied. It is almost six minutes into our adventure that we finally get our first bit of dialogue spoken out loud by any of our characters. I want our own horses, Pa, is what Laura has to say. Charles is in the process of hitching up the new horses that they have and letting Laura know that in a short period of time that they will have three horses and not just two. Meanwhile, 
Caroline is coming with Carrie and Mary, carrying the laundry that they have just managed to do. For traveling by covered wagon across a number of states, all I have to say is that their clothes are immaculate. Their faces are spotless. How clean can you stay on the prairie? We also get introduced to this really interesting dynamic between Charles and Caroline's relationship. Caroline being a little bit more uptight and reserved than the lighthearted Charles Ingalls is. And for those of you who don't know, Laura is looking underneath the horses to identify their genders and make sure that she gives them proper names. Laura Ingalls, friend and ally. Once again, they load up their wagon and they head on out. You can definitely tell that there was some money spent on this back in 1974 when this was produced. And the production value is not too terrible for made for TV movies. We do get this awesome aerial shot that zooms out to show the Ingalls approaching a pretty wide stream there, which of course leads to our first big action scene. Anyone who has played the Oregon Trail games can identify with the next scene that is about to happen. And this is where the covered wagon approaches a creek and they have to make their way across. In the process of navigating this creek, the horses do get spooked and they just kind of stall out in the middle of the creek, which forces Charles to jump out of the wagon and try to get the horses back on track here. Michael Landon is doing all of his own stunts. In the process of jumping out of the wagon into the water, Charles is pulled almost underneath the wagon before he gathers his strength and proceeds to make his way towards the horses, where we then realize that the water is just at his knees. Charles proceeds to lead the horses the rest of the way out of the water. Caroline is at the reins, trying to drive the horses to also get out of the water so that they eventually make it safely to the other side. Caroline rushes towards Charles with a proclamation that he could have drowned, and Charles just simply lies there and laughs. Meanwhile, as the wagon is making it safely across, Jack got left behind on the other side and proceeds to try to also make his way across the creek. Laura's head emerges from the wagon to then inquire about Jack and how we cannot see Jack. Charles lays there for another moment before he gets up and starts to go look for Jack. This scene of them navigating the creek is in the book. The major difference is the depth of the water. When Charles jumps into the water to lead the horses the rest of the way across the river, their heads are the only thing above water. The wheels of the wagon are barely touching the ground. They are moments away of being swept down this creek. At least in crossing Lake Pippin, if they were to have fallen in, then somebody would have found out soon enough. There's a passage in the little house in the prayer book that touches on this whole scene here where... It describes, the river would have rolled them over and over and carried them away and drowned them, and nobody would have ever known what had become of them. For weeks, perhaps no other person would come along that road. But the most important lesson we've learned from crossing this creek is, it's not how deep the water is, it's the strength and the motion of the current. Caroline and the girls set up camp for the evening and prepare dinner as they wait for Charles to return, hopefully with Jack. Unfortunately, when Charles does return, Jack is nowhere to be found. This, of course, puts Laura in a mood because, as we've already established at the very beginning, Jack was her bestest and truest friend. Laura spends the next few scenes just kind of being a little resentful towards Pa there. She's walking alongside the wagon instead of in it. She's disregarding her bonnet. She's not really communicating as much. 
Laura's distraught. Laura's really upset here. And Caroline's yelling from the wagon that Lauren should put on her bonnet to avoid excessive sun exposure and wind because it's just going to make her skin all leathery. Your daughter just lost her dog. Come on. <laughs> Camp is set up for the night. Mary and Carrie are asleep inside the wagon and Laura's sitting outside in the moonlight collecting her thoughts. Charles and Caroline then have this conversation about why it is that they have really moved and when are they finally going to establish their new home? Caroline makes it a point to say, we've been in Kansas for four days. How much longer? Nobody else wants to be on the road. When does this end? Charles' response is that he wants to find the perfect place. He doesn't want to have to get up and move again. He wants to be self-sufficient. He wants to be relying just on himself. He doesn't want a hand-to-mouth kind of existence like he says they had back in Wisconsin. He then mentions the promise of 160 acres and the opportunity to farm his own land. What Charles is referencing is the Homestead Act of 1862. Essentially, we have two parents trying to discuss the livelihood of the family and how are they going to survive. Laura then steps out of the shadows, informing her parents that she has heard a strange sound. It's originally excused as just being the wind, until Paul gets up and goes to investigate. Paul pulls out his rifle and is waiting anxiously, and what happens? Our truest and bestest friend Jack has jumped out of the tall grasses. Actually, he doesn't really jump. He's pretty tired at this point. He just kind of crawls out of the grasses there. But Jack has returned. We then have this really touching scene where Laura approaches her dad. He's playing the fiddle by the campfire. And she apologizes to her dad. And she apologizes for the fact that she doubted Pa's remorse over the loss of Jack. So now we have Jack's return. We have Laura and Pa's relationship making up. We have the tension between Charles and Caroline about continuing to trek across Kansas, kind of alleviated. The next scene has the Ingalls sitting around the campfire enjoying breakfast out on the prairie. Once again, Caroline is dressed in a solid white outfit and it is spotless. Charles also drops the news that they are maybe only 40 or 50 miles away from Independence, Kansas, which makes Caroline so happy because she wants to see civilization. She wants to see people. This, however, gets Charles a little upset because he did not travel all this way to come visit a town. It's during the next scene that Charles announces that they have found the place they are going to build their new home. So to put in perspective where the Ingalls are located at this time, the book mentions that Charles is pointing out that they are looking at the Verdigris River. I have to say that Pa is apparently a walking atlas because he knows how far away Independence is located and he knows the Verdigris River is right there. What follows is a montage of Pa and Ma working together to construct their new little house on the prairie. However, the scene is slightly problematic. Actually, it's not slightly problematic. It is totally problematic because Pa and Ma are actually squatting on land that is not theirs. They're squatting on land that is not theirs. They're using lumber, timber on land that is not theirs. So essentially their house that they are building doesn't even belong to them. And again, if you want more perspective into this, I highly recommend Caroline Frazier's book. So in the process of building their new home out of stolen resources from land that they are illegally occupying, 
Charles comes to the conclusion that the work that he is doing is not suitable for Caroline to be participating in. We finally have a scene where Caroline has dirt on her face, just to let us know that she has been working really hard here. TV Caroline is a little luckier because she has just a small log fall down on her shoulder. In the book, Caroline, she has a log fall down and sprains her ankle instead. We get another really tender scene here between Charles and Caroline where Charles is feeling guilty after the log has kind of fallen on Caroline for bringing them out to where he wants to be living and away from her family. Caroline then reassures him that wherever you go, that's where home is. And you and the children are my family. This incident of Caroline getting hurt is what then leads to the introduction of Mr. Edwards. Charles rides in, informing Caroline that he has met a neighbor, Mr. Edwards, and how he's willing to work trade for trade to help build their houses. Charles guarantees to Caroline that you're going to like him. Ma's response is, oh, I know I will. <laughs> Famous last words. Because in the next scene, we are introduced to Mr. Edwards as he is teaching little Laura how to spit. Needless to say, Caroline is not happy about this. Caroline's disdain for Mr. Edwards is clear. She calls him uncivilized and refuses to be friendly with him and doubts that he even attends church. Caroline even goes as far as to say she knows what kind of women that he has known, which does get a little chuckle out of Charles in the background. For being born and raised in the big woods of Wisconsin, Caroline is really pretentious. I love how Charles immediately calls out Caroline on this, saying that just because he doesn't go to church is not the reason to judge his character. Caroline finishes up the conversation by saying that she will be friendly with him, but her heart won't be in it. I'm doing my best to really care about Caroline, but she's just making it really difficult to like her. Charles and Mr. Edwards eventually finish the house. Ma invites him for dinner. And the scene ends with Pa playing a rendition of Old Dan Tucker as Mr. Edwards heads into the dark, back to his own place. And Laura gives us another voiceover about if she had a remembrance book, this would definitely be in there as one of the best days ever. I'm not entirely sure how much I am enjoying this voiceover of Laura. It worked well at the beginning, giving our setup there, it's like I almost forgot that we had one to start the entire episode with. The next scene's really cute between Charles and Caroline because it starts off as if it's going to be this blow up about the girl's inability to attend school or church. Always reassuring, Charles lets Caroline know that the girls can't get any closer to God than where they are at. He then lets her in on his other observation, that they are alone, that they have privacy which is just enough time for them to have a nice, passionate kiss, just as all the girls and Jack enter the house. This is a scene I imagine anyone with children can relate to. Well, we can't be out on the prairie without, of course, discussing the Native Americans, and that's what the next scene does bring up. Charles points out that doing the laundry would be a lot easier if Caroline just took the clothes down to the stream itself instead of hauling the water all the way back up. This leads to Caroline having some disparaging remarks about the Native Americans and the hope that she will not see any. 
Her prejudice is already leaking into Little Mary because she flat out also agrees that she hopes to not see any. And that's when little Laura, the little voice of reason, asks the most honest question in regards to Caroline's statement about not wanting to see the Native Americans. And that is, why did we come here then? Laura clearly understands that coming into somebody else's land, you're going to see those people. At that point, Caroline gives a slight chuckle and really just kind of shrugs an answer off by saying, well, that does seem silly, before she changes the conversation. Caroline here is way, way more toned down with her prejudice against the Native Americans. In the book, she is not shy about sharing her feelings. However, she is not the most problematic character. That title would go to the characters known as Mr. and Mrs. Scott. Moving on, we have another visit from Mr. Edwards, and we get to see how Laura and his friendship is growing. We also get to see how Caroline's annoyance with Mr. Edwards is also growing here. She's got no other neighbors, and yet she seems so determined to drive the one that they have off. Meanwhile, we've gotten this ever-growing list of projects that Charles is still trying to complete around the house, which is doors, floors, roof, fireplace, hearth, and a well. He doesn't mention it, but outhouse should be on there as well. We finally get the birth scene of that foal, and that leads us to our next action scene in which Pa gets chased by wolves. Just like everything else up, up to this point in the pilot, this scene is long and drawn out. Which it has to be, because source material, there's only so much you can do with chapters about making a door, building a floor, putting on a roof. But the chapter where they dig a well, that's a pretty exciting chapter. Charles eventually makes it home later in the evening, only to have these wolves surround the house. It's this second encounter with the wolves that finally gets a fire underneath Charles's ass to build these doors for his house he's been promising. And it also leads to the completion of everything else that Charles had planned. The fireplace is now done. The roof is done. It just took some wolves chasing him. There's this really quick moment in one of the scenes as well that focuses on the completion of the hearth and the positioning of a little ceramic shepherdress. Now, um, that shepherdress is in the book and does continue to go out throughout the series, so I can't help but wonder, will we see that little ceramic shepherdress in the series as well? With the house completed, Charles heads out on another hunting expedition, and we are about 46 minutes into this. So we'll call that our halfway point and a good spot to go ahead and take a break. So feelings about this so far. Of course, it's really slow. Um, and I know 1973 did not have the budget or the you know, technology to go ahead and even make some of these scenes possible, but I would have loved to have seen them crossing Lake Pippin. That would have been an awesome scene to itself. So if there is ever the plan for a reboot of Little House on the Prairie, please have them cross a frozen Mississippi River. Michael Landon is dreamy. I would follow him across the prairie. No questions asked about that. Every time that he smiles, I just can't help but think of Jordan Catalano in My So-Called Life and how he leans. Both of those things are just very beautiful images. 
Caroline's slightly irritating still. The kids, they're exciting. Mr. Edwards is really the thing that livens up everything so far that we have seen. So looking forward to the second half. Like I said, for the book, I know what's going to happen, but I just to see it visually from 1974. That's what I'm looking forward to. But the truth is, I just can't wait till we actually get to the series itself. So once again, thank you for listening to this debut episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I am your host, John Hernandez, and everyone take care till next time. Thank you.